You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Prophecy seems to have two different meanings in the church. In charismatic or Pentecostal circles, it represents a spiritual gift in which God speaks to a person and they speak his word out to others. Sometimes this may be a word of edification or even a word of warning, but uh, more often than not, it's a personal word from God that the hearer gives to another. This is all well and good, since to hear God's voice and speak it out is what it means to prophesy at the very basic level. I have had many prophesy over me in this way, and I have occasionally prophesied over others as well. I have seen the church edified through this gifting, as I have seen the church warned through this gifting, and I have also received many personal words over the years through this gifting. Uh, But in other circles of the church, to be prophetic is to speak out against injustice. This is, sometimes, less about getting a direct word from God and more about having a heart for the things God cares about in the Bible. It's more about the tone of the message reflecting the concerns that the biblical prophets of old carried. It's it's about fighting oppression, promoting justice, rebuking political leaders on their abuse of power, and pointing nations towards making corrections. This understanding of prophecy is also all well and good, for this is what the prophets of the Bible do. When God speaks to them, he often speaks to them on justice themes, compelling them to speak into the world a message that the world does not want to hear and often refuses to hear. The unfortunate truth today is that many modern prophets don't operate in the fullness of the biblical prophets. Some speak out God's personal words, but never seem to trail into issues of social justice at all. Others believe that prophetic words can only be positive or about blessing, and rarely or never about correction. Others speak out about the themes of the prophets, but without the prophetic gifting necessary to do so well. And still others speak out on those same themes with the gifting to do so, but are not disciplined on how to hear God's voice more clearly. This imbalance in the prophetic of today is a bit painful to watch. I've seen many prophets of the supernatural type preach and endorse the kinds of politics and methods that run counter to the biblically prophetic themes that God cares about. It's deeply confusing when this happens because you know these prophets have given many valid words before. Why do they seem so far off in their concern for social justice? Are they not listening on such themes and just speaking what they think God would say? Are they so sold on their own thoughts that they can't hear the voice of God on those issues? Or does God not care about the same themes of the Bible today? Or is there some kind of deeper spiritual thing going on behind God's curtain that we don't understand? Whatever the case may be, it's confusing when the concerns of modern-day prophets don't line up, or worse, counter the words of the biblical prophets. We should expect prophets to have tough words for us from time to time, because from a biblical perspective, it seems that a common mark of a true prophet is the fact that many will not like what they have to say. 
for prophetic messages in the Bible are often responded to with anger and vehemence. But these difficult words are the words that God grows in the hearts of the prophets time and time again throughout the scripture. Jesus knew this. That's why in his famous Beatitudes, he declared, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's Matthew 5, through 12. According to Jesus, prophets are reviled, persecuted, and slandered for godly reasons. And so if this ever happens to you, know that you're in good company. In fact, you're in the same company of Jesus who was reviled, persecuted, slandered, and ultimately murdered, which was another thing that happened to the prophets of old. See, the prophetic gifting is a heavy weight for with words of blessing and words of knowledge also come words that no one wants to hear. Jeremiah shows us just how hard it was to live with such a calling. He said, I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become a reproach and derision all day long. It's Jeremiah 27 through 8. See, to be a prophet is to struggle with an audience. Many won't listen to you. Those who do may hate you for your words. Those closest to you may turn their backs on you, for as Jesus himself discovered, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Which, by the way, he said this right before delivering a prophetic message that enraged his hometown so much that they formed a mob and tried to throw him off a cliff. It's interesting how this kind of behavior can be the response of God's people while evil nations like Nineveh sometimes just repent when a prophetic word comes along their way. See, many prophets face pretty constant rejection. It's, it's all a part of the job. They may be loved by the generations that follow their time, but they're often hated by the generation they prophesy over. In many American churches uh, today, we, we have an unspoken rule. Don't speak about politics. Pastors can talk about whatever else they want to talk about, but when it comes to politics, they are expected to shut up and keep to themselves. See, there's a difficulty with this. That difficulty is that part of the reason prophets ever existed in the first place was to speak God's word over governing authorities and their nations. Heck, in many ways, the prophet Samuel created Israel's government, for it was through him that God put in place Israel's first king. And Samuel would continue to give that king prophetic words throughout his reign. Oftentimes, throughout the Bible, prophets would show up at the king's door with an important message from God. Other times, kings would seek out a prophet to ask them what God wanted to say to them. And sometimes, the king would be anointed with prophetic gifting himself. Uh, perhaps this is one of the reasons King David was such a memorable figure in the Bible. All throughout his narrative, he is found personally seeking God out for answers and receiving them like a prophet would. But perhaps like most people, David struggled to hear God's words 
on, on issues where he himself had no conviction. Uh, for example, God sometimes had to use a prophet named Nathan to draw attention to David's actions. When David wanted to build a temple, Nathan said that God didn't want him to do it since he was a man of war and had shed blood. It's 1 Chronicles 28.3. Uh, I gather that this word might have startled David since he was a celebrated war hero and many considered that to be a good thing. But God saw it as something that withheld him from building his holy temple. Uh, likewise, David seemed unaware of just how far he had fallen with his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, forcing Nathan to have to speak God's word over the situation. Fortunately, David's prophetic heart for justice was strong enough for him to recognize the wrong he had committed, and he repented, rather than kill the messenger, as many other kings might have done. But David seemed blind to some areas where he had no conviction. And that's why the prophet is God's megaphone to us, to the nation, and therefore to the politics of the nation. We see the church today, we often expect this same prophetic voice to stay silent. We want them to keep their mouths shut, unless of course they have the same political views as us. <laughs> But that's just the thing, they don't have the same political views as us. Because the prophets don't fit in political boxes. All they know is that God gave them a word to preach and so they preach it, regardless of the way in which we perceive that word or the box we try to cram it in. And we can either listen to their prophetic message or we can combat it. And historically, we combat it church needs to talk about the messages of the biblical prophets. The, the church needs to be able to have conversations around how those prophetic messages should play out in our own contexts and nations and politics. And, and if we decide rather to shut up the prophets so no one is offended, then in actuality we have told God to shut up. He can have whatever else he wants in our lives, heart and all, but he can't touch our politics. And we, of course, see the problem with a statement like that we need to grow in the art of listening to the things we don't want to listen to trying to stay silent about politics in order to keep peace among the church isn't working anyways there's an increasingly sharpened political divide in the church right now and much of it is because we have decided that politics are personal and not religious as though God doesn't care about what we think or do in the area of our lives that affects everyone around us. If we want to think like God thinks, then we need the prophets. They have always helped draw a line for us as to what it means to live as God's people. They, they would speak God's word out, leaving the hearers to decide if they were bold enough to obey or not. And if the hearer chose to disregard the word or slander the prophet, then they had chosen in that moment to deny God's expectations of them. Maybe this sounds odd, but perhaps the church could use some more prophetic dividing lines. Perhaps it would be beneficial to us to hear God say, I am calling my church to do such and such a thing. Then we'd be able to tell the difference between churchgoers who are really willing to go the distance with God and those who aren't willing to follow him far enough. Some prophetic words just naturally draw lines like that for people to see. It certainly drew a line for the Israelites. There were some who responded to prophetic words with repentance and prayer. 
but many who disobeyed or told God's mouthpieces to just shut up. But Jesus expects our everything in following him. He has put out his own dividing lines as to what it means to be a Christian, and he has expectations that will choose him over everything else. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's Matthew 10, 34 through 39. See, Jesus' expectations, they're naturally divisive. How many families have fallen apart because a son or daughter decided that Jesus was worth it all when their parents reviled him? Or more intriguingly, how many Christian families are experiencing Jesus' sword today when a son or daughter feels that their parents' form of Christianity is ignoring the prophetic heart of Jesus, or vice versa. Jesus puts out the dividing line. If it comes down to it, who are we going to choose to please? Him or our own flesh and blood? As great as our own flesh and blood is, if they are at odds with Jesus and we choose them, then Jesus says we're not worthy of him. As difficult as the cross is to carry, if we choose ease over the cross, then Jesus says we're not worthy of him. It's not that Jesus wants to militarize families against each other. It's just that he knows his ways are a tough pill to swallow. They always have been. That's why those who preached them got killed. That's why Jesus got killed. And our pledge to Jesus could get us killed too. And he's worth it if that ends up happening. We must become less concerned with what others think and more concerned with what God thinks. And we have 66 books called the Bible to go off of to help us understand what exactly it is that God thinks. When we become grounded in the scriptures, we will then be able to hear the voice of the modern prophets more discerningly. For God's words today should not oppose God's words back then. We are commanded time and time again to test prophetic words. The Bible is our testing grounds. Honestly, there are a lot of topics that modern day prophets don't even have to address because the Bible already does it. And as we study the Bible, we're going to often find ourselves facing tough questions. We too will have to decide if we're willing to listen and follow or if we're going to deny and run away. For many of the prophetic words of old will be applicable to what we face today, whether they be in politics or anything else. And if you can't find some kind of proof or illustration of how to think or what to do, either in Jesus, the prophets, or the rest of the Bible, then you probably shouldn't be making ultimate statements on those topics. We'll have to come together to seek out an answer. Now. Just a quick note before we keep moving on here. When I talk about prophetic politics, I'm not talking about Jesus being a Republican or Democrat or telling us how to vote. The Bible's portrait of Jesus shows us that he fits no political box or party that we Americans have constructed. Rather, when I talk about prophetic politics, 
I'm talking about letting the Bible inform the political actions we take in our personal lives and the ways that we think about or address hot topics. Our, our actions and opinions cannot be removed from the prophetic heart of Scripture. Okay, now everything being said that we've talked about so far, it's a fair point to say that the only nation that followed Yahweh, the one true God, was Israel. And America is not that. Uh, we are neither a Christian nation nor a nation of Christians. God's only nation now is Israel's predecessor, the church. Christians are citizens of God's kingdom of heaven, and they submit their lives in full allegiance to heaven. On the other hand, the Bible paints a picture of America as fitting the portrait that John draws in Revelation of Babylon, and Babylon's always implode upon themselves. With all this in mind, sometimes we wonder why national politics should matter to us as all as Christians. Uh, the nations don't really care about what God has to say, nor does any nation have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon them so that they can live up to the expectations that God might put on them. So some might say, I'll let them keep their own national politics and we'll just keep our heavenly politics. I agree with this thinking in some ways. Uh, for example, when America decides to change their opinion of what is morally acceptable for a personal decision, uh, I sometimes don't get involved. For example, I believe that God calls humanity only to heterosexual marriage, but I don't expect the world will choose to align with that thinking. Likewise, I believe that we shouldn't be smoking weed, but if you don't follow Jesus, then I can't quite communicate that to you in a way that you'll really care about. The kingdom of this world has decided that on topics such as these, you can make your own personal decision. And if you don't follow Jesus, you probably won't care much for what I have to say. So I try to understand what makes sense to, to speak into and to what level I am to speak into it. Now, that being said, a rule of thumb for me is that if a nation outside of heaven creates a rule or a paradigm that oppresses another person in any way, it becomes my job to lean into the prophets and address the powers that be. For Jesus' mission statement was on behalf of the oppressed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So to reiterate, when the nations of this world make ungodly decisions that affect themselves, I know there's little I can do other than illustrate what I think we should do in my own life. I can try to engage the conversation further if I feel led to, but there's no promise that anyone outside the faith will listen, just like when Herod ignored John the Baptist for re rebuking him for his sinful marriage. But, when the nations of this world make ungodly decisions that allow people to oppress others, I sense the prophetic call come alive. For I don't believe God put the church here on the earth to be silent about injustice. He puts us here to show the world that there's a better way. He expects heaven to break through in our actions as we dismantle the ways of Babylon, and in doing so, liberate the captives and lead them to Jesus. This is all the more reason the, the world needs the church to hear and heed the prophetic. I think it's a bit of a slap in the face to Jesus when 
We are often late to justice parties instead of leading them. And often by the time we catch up, secular organizations have, uh, with unheavenly ideology, have already championed the battle, and Jesus looks like he was forced into having the conversation rather than setting the table for everyone to come and dine with him. The prophetic messages of the Bible call us to create actions with our lives and politics and our justice. Sure, heaven will not always overlap with the world around us and everything, but it will force Christians to fight for heaven when desperate moments arise. And in those moments, we'll discover a Jesus who has no party lines. For he will call us to fight on behalf of both the aborted children of right-wing concern and the refugees of left-wing concern. Uh, he has set his own dividing lines in place and he calls our full allegiance to him over all others if we are to be worthy of him. I've heard it said before that Jesus didn't get into hot topics and wasn't political, but that's not what I see when I read through the Bible. There are many incredible statements all over the place, many of them very strong, many of them speaking in the hot topics of his time. For example, the Jews fought over the existence of resurrection, and Jesus just popped up, said it was true, gave his biblical reasoning, and insulted those who somehow couldn't see resurrection as a real thing. On another hot topic front, the Jews fought about paying taxes. But Jesus didn't seem concerned if we gave Caesar his petty coins with his image on it, so long as we were giving God that which had his image on it. That is, our entire being, since we're made in the image of God. This teaching probably didn't make many friends, since one thing Jews of varying sides could agree on was that you could lie to a tax collector without punishment. In another debate, the Jews were fighting about what was allowable in marriage, and Jesus' statement on the topic surprised all sides. Yes, some of his statements on the topic agreed with some of the views already out there, but he said enough on the topic that you, could find, you couldn't find his entire statement and all of his beliefs in any Jewish party line. And so he probably went on to offend everyone. For Jesus, people weren't required to get married. But if they were going to, he expected them to commit to their spouse for the rest of their life. Furthermore, Jesus believed that divorce was never required of anyone, even if a spouse had uh, committed adultery, though Jesus believed that divorce was obviously allowable if someone persisted in unrepentant adultery. But divorce on any other grounds was, in Jesus's eyes, not a legitimate divorce, and therefore any following remarriage was just adultery. This is a prophetic dividing line that Jesus drew in the sand, for me at least. And it forces me to view my own marriage differently than others might view theirs. My allegiance to Jesus requires me to take extra care of my marriage, for if it were to fail, I believe Jesus would be calling me to a celibate life. And I don't want that. This forces me to soften my heart towards my wife and work hard to fix anything that comes our way. Based on my understanding of scripture, the day I said yes to Jody, I was also saying no to any possibility without her. And that's the same thing I teach those who come to me for premarital counseling. And the fact that everything I just said sounds ridiculous or over the top today shows that Jesus's prophetic opinions are still radical after 2000 years of processing them. These are just a few examples of how Jesus ruffled feathers by speaking into the uh, uh, 
speaking God's opinion into hot topics. Surely it was upsetting how often his words made biblical sense to those he, that he debated. Surely it was annoying that he didn't fit into any Jewish parties like the Pharisees or Sadducees or the Essenes. Surely it was off-putting when he said something that would validate the thinking of any of these groups in part, but not in full. People draw their own lines all the time and then try to cram Jesus into that box. But Jesus has always been found outside of the lines, beckoning people to leave their boxes behind and follow him. As we step over the line to follow him, he often draws a new line on the ground and says, this is what it means to continue following me. Are, are you still coming? If we turn to say, well, no, I might lose something if I go that distance, then we might hear the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, do you want to aim to live a life worthy of this man or no? People often say Jesus wasn't political, but that ignores the context of his favorite message. He spent his entire ministry preaching on the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this was a kingdom where he was king, and he was inviting people to follow him there. He was here to usurp the world out of the grip of Satan and the false gods. How weird it must have been to look out the window on Palm Sunday and see Jesus being paraded down the street as a king. This all happened right there out in the open, not in front of, uh, not only in front of Rome that already had its own politics and kings over that area, but right there in front of the Jewish leaders who thought that they were in charge of ushering in God's kingdom. Jesus came to replace the kingdoms of this world with his kingdom of heaven. And because of that, he would face earthly politics eye to eye. Politicians would go on to turn Jesus into a refugee. Politicians would try to kill him. That's why Jesus would call Herod a fox. It wasn't a very kind thing to say. <laughs> Politicians would eventually bring Jesus into prison, make him a political prisoner, and put him on death row and sentence him to the electric chair. Jesus was persecuted by politics in ways that many Christians could never imagine. Jesus... And I know this is kind of hard to hear, but Jesus was somewhat of a divisive person to follow. With the world being so divisive today, a lot of times we don't want to hear things like that. But it's true. If you followed Jesus, you were finding yourself not following something else. And that created divisiveness. Everyone turned against him. Those he came to save and those he came to usurp. They turned against him. Religious folk, political folk, they turned against him. There was even some disciples that were following him that John says they stopped following him after hearing some of his teaching. Disciples beyond the, the 12. Look, don't hear me wrong here. It's important for the church to be unified. In fact, Jesus prayed that we would be perfectly one as a witness to the world. That's, this speaks volumes to us setting aside our differences in race, gender, and class that have become one. But we should also seek to be unified in our goals and our thinking. We should be seeking to follow the prophetic teaching of Jesus. And if we're ignoring the prophetic uh, calling of Jesus so that we can try to pretend to be one, things will fall apart. 
His expectation was that we must be unified, but under his direction. He wanted us to be one as he and the Father were one. And can we really be one like Jesus or the Father if we deny the messages that Jesus and the Father are giving us? Seems the church has tried to make space for this idea that we could all just ignore the prophetic words and still be one. We're willing to let congregants silently subject their minds to another kingdom if they can keep a kind of quiet churchy peace. And we can never challenge Christians as to uh, what they should think in order to try to keep a churchy peace. And we've done that. And I think because we've done that for so long, it's not shocking that we're reaping a, a political explosion among churchgoers now. I know, of course, there's grace and mercy and patience as we're all trying to discern where God takes us. Uh, it takes time for people to grow, to grow the fruit of God, to, to, to learn to be obedient to a prophetic word. It takes time. But if the church decides it's okay to quietly harden our hearts to the words of Jesus, we're going to find a rude awakening when a Nathan-like figure comes knocking on the door to make us aware of something that had been staring us in the face the whole time. The series that we're starting right now is about trying to, to find Jesus's form of, of finding and creating justice. And the prophetic word, we're starting here because the, the prophets are compass as to what we are to care about as Christians. It is a compass that points us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And all that's a requirement of God upon us. See, if Jesus has opinions on hot topics, which he did, if the Bible speaks into our what kind of ideas we should have on politics and everything else, which it does, then we need to learn to listen. We need to learn to listen to the teachings of King Jesus and not ignore them as so many in the past have done but live them out. And the world right now is offering a lot of views on what it means to be a social justice warrior and to care about prophetic themes and the ways in which they're trying to accomplish justice. It's, it's not godly, but it looks appetizing. It looks quick. It looks fast. It looks aggressive. So a lot of people run straight to that. But Jesus is telling us, no, 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 no. Follow my people, Christians, citizens of heaven, follow my ways of pursuing justice. They may look weak to you, but they're not. They may look slow to you, but even if they end up being slow, it will create the progression you are looking for. My kind of ways can't be turned over by the gates of Hades themselves. Whereas when we fight for justice in the ways of Satan, we just try to dominate a domination system, which creates a new domination system, which creates a new domination system. Don't let our zeal to end injustice drive us 
away from fighting for justice with heaven's ways. Plant our zeal in heaven. Jesus puts down a dividing line as to how we are to follow him in his prophetic call against injustice. And then he asks us to trust his methods. Are we going to follow? Or will we ask him to shut up so that we can live and think how we'd like, just like the many centuries of God followers before us? The choice is ours. And in the following weeks, we'll be talking about how it looks to fight injustice the Jesus way.